Welcome to the Third Road Tesla Podcast. My name is Safian Fraval, and today we have a very special guest. But before I introduce our special guest, I'm going to go through and introduce our crew. So our regular Third, third Road Tesla Podcast crew. So today we have Omar Kazi, Tesla Truth. Boom. <laughs> and we have Kristen. Hi. K10. <laughs> Thank you. And we got Vincent Yu from Tesmanian. Hi. All right, great. And then we got Galileo Russell from Hyperchange. What up, third row? And then we got Viv, from, who's uh, Falcon Heavy. Hey. Great. All right, Omar, do you want to introduce our guest? Please welcome the inventor of the car fart, Elon Musk. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Please put that on my gravestone. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of crazy that we're actually all here. And um, thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. Um, we're all Tesla customers, fans, and... It's really good that it's finally happening. And I remember um, that I was looking at your Wikipedia tweet. Um, that it's like this bizarre, fictionalized version of reality. Yeah. And uh, I replied to him, like, why don't you come on a podcast and like tell your fictionalized version of reality? Sure, exactly. <laughs> I'll tell my fictionalized version. <laughs> and um, you replied, okay, sure. And I was kind of like taken by surprise by that. And um, you know, the way you engage and listen to your customers online, yeah. it's like, I've never seen anything like that from, you know, a CEO of a public company or sure. any executive. So can you tell us a little bit where that came from, why you communicate directly instead of like having this PR strategy that most companies have? Sure. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it started out, I actually had one of the very, very first Twitter accounts, like when it was like less than 10,000 uh, people. And, I th and, and then everyone was tweeting at me, like, what kind of latte they had at Starbucks. <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, this seems like the silliest thing ever. So I deleted my Twitter account. And then <clears throat> uh, someone else took it over and started tweeting in my name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then a couple of uh, friends of mine, um, well, Lee and Jason Calcanis said, they both said, hey, you should really use Twitter to get your message out. Um, and also some somebody's tweeting in your name and they're saying crazy things. So I was like, I'll say crazy things in my name. Uh, <laughs> Did you have to pay them? No, no, they, 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 they um, I, I'm not sure who it was, but it was for some reason, I, I don't know, I got my account back. And, um, and, and then I was just, I, I don't know, to some degree it's like uh, just sort of, I just started tweeting for fun, really. And my, my early tweets were quite crazy. Uh, I was trying to explain, like, it has, the arc of insanity is, is short, uh, in that it's not very steep, because it started off insane. <laughs> and so if it's still insane, it's, you know, it hasn't changed that much. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and I don't know, it, it, seemed, it seemed kind of fun to, you know, as, I think I've said this before. It's like, you know, some people use their hair to express myself. I use Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you like Twitter so much? I mean, you could use Instagram. As opposed example, to other platforms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, like, I don't trust Facebook, obviously, you know, and and, and then in Instagram is, is fine, but it's... I think not exactly my style. Um, it's hard to convey a, a, a sort of intellectual arguments on Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard on Twitter too, but it's, uh, but you can't, uh, you know, it's, so Instagram is also owned by Facebook and I was like, eh. <laughs> you know, um, deleted. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Just leave it at 20. I, it's like I don't really need to just, if I need to say something, I only really need to say it on one platform pretty much. And, um, so, and, and so if I'm trying to, and, and I don't want to spend too much time in social media. So it's just like, okay, I'll, if, if, if people want to know what I'm saying, then they can just sort of go to Twitter and I'll keep doing that as long as Twitter is good, I suppose, more good than bad. Um, yeah, crypto scammers are really. <laughs> oh, I understand. Yeah. They've been yeah. taking advantage of Vincent recently. Yeah, I know a lot of. Really? Yeah, yeah, there's like ten Vincents out there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, right. yeah. But they totally they yeah. copy everything and just like change one. Yeah, they thing. use my avatars and then the picture and then they just post like right below. Yeah. Your tweet. You yeah, know? yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah. And they blocked me too. We fight them all all, all the time. We're always like reporting them. Like every day we report like every 10 day. people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have so many, like, yeah, exactly, conversations with Twitter, like, come on, <laughs> can you just, like, I think it would take, like, three or four customer service people to just look look at this, it's crypto scam, block it. And yes. I, I think it should be easy. Um, but then, like, my wife, Vegan Shelley, I think you liked her tweet the other day, um, she got banned for, like, replying to one of your tweets and quoting, like, the video inside of it. And then she got suspended for like a day or something. I was like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, so it's just weird how the algorithm works. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of manipulation, but you know, going back to the Wikipedia page, you know, it's kind of interesting just sure. what a decade you've had. I remember I was reading somebody's article. I think they interviewed you in 2009 or something like that. And they said, you know, if you had met Elon Musk in 2009, right after the recession, they're like struggling with the roadster, you know, mm -hmm. you never would have thought that you sure. are where you are today. You're, you know, launching astronauts into space. We doing be, Well, hope, yeah, this year, you know, servicing the International Space Station. I mean, Tesla with the Model yeah. 3, the Model Y, you know, electrification really. Yeah. Without Tesla, it would not be where it is today. You see where the other legacy automakers are. They're not doing great. So, you know, looking at kind of like this... Like you've, you've become this legendary figure and looking at kind of like how people kind of see you, mm -hmm. kind of the Ashley Vance biography or Wikipedia page, what is it that really kind of sticks out to you or, you know, makes you laugh? Like that's just completely <laughs> off base. Yeah. Um, well, I think I, I mentioned that the, that uh, I kept getting referred to as an investor in, yeah. in like a bunch of things. And it's like, but I, I actually, uh, don't invest really except in companies that I help create. So I only have the only publicly traded share that I have at all is Tesla. I have no diversity uh, on, on publicly traded shares. Like us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nothing. So, um, and, um, you know, that's quite, quite unusual. So, uh, you know, almost everyone diversifies to some degree. Um, and then the only stock that I have of significance outside of Tesla is SpaceX, which is privately, which is a private, you know, private corporation. Um, and, um, and and then <clears throat> in order to uh, um, get liquidity, which is mostly to reinvest in SpaceX and Tesla, um, and occasionally in like uh, pro provide funding for sm much smaller projects like Neuralink and Boring Company, uh, then I'll I'll actually take out loans against the Tesla and SpaceX stock. Um, so the, 
So what so what I actually have is is whatever the, my Tesla and SpaceX stock is, and then there's about a billion dollars of debt against mm-hmm. that. So, um, which you know, it's it's this is sort of taken to imply that I'm claiming that I have no money, which I'm not claiming. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, it, it, it's it's something to make it clear that you'll see some like number, some big number in like Forbes or something. People will think I have the te- the Tesla and SpaceX stock, and I have the cash, mm-hmm. and I'm being somehow just, I'm just sitting on the cash and doing nothing with it, and like hoarding resources. I'm like, no, it's it's you know the only alternative would be to say, okay, let's give the stock to the government or something, and then the government would be running things, and the government just is not good at running things. That's the main thing. Um, but there's like like a fundamental. Sort of a question of like consumption versus capital allocation. Um, this is probably gonna get me into trouble, but uh, you know, the, the the paradigm of say com- communism versus capitalism, I think, is fundamentally um, o- sort of orthogonal to the reality of uh, of, of, of of actual economics in in, in, in some ways. So, uh, what you actually care about is like the responsiveness of the feedback loops to the maximizing the happiness of the population. Um, and if, if more resources are controlled by entities that have poor response in their feedback loops, so if, if it's like a monopoly corporation or a small oligopoly, or in the limit, I would say the, a monopolistic corporation in the limit is the government. So, you know, it's just it's it's. This is not to say if people who work for the government are bad. If those if those same people are taken and put in a, in a better sort of operating system situation, the outcome will be much better. Um, so, it's really just what is the responsiveness of the organization to maximizing the happiness of the people, um, and um, and and so you want to have a, a competitive situation where it's truly competitive. Uh, where companies aren't gaming the system, um, and uh, and then where the rules are set correctly, um, and and then you need to be on the alert for regulatory capture, where the the referees are in fact captured by the players, um, which is you know and, and the the players should not control the referees, you know essentially, which which can happen, um, you know I think like that happened for example with uh, I think the zero emission vehicle mandate in in California. Uh, where um, California was like really strict on EVs, and then they the, the car companies managed to sort of, frankly, in my view, tri- trick the uh, regulators into into saying, okay, you don't you don't need to be so hardcore about the EVs, and instead you say say fuel cells of the future, mm-hmm. but fuel cells are of course many years away, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> forever. <laughs> so then, so then they let up the let the the rules, and then. You know, GM recalled the EV1 and crushed them in, in, a, in exactly. like yeah, a junkyard, which awful. was against the wishes of the owner. Yeah. I mean, they they against, all lined up to buy them, and they wouldn't let them buy it. Uh, well, I mean, Chris Payne did this great documentary on it, and it's like the you know the, the owners of the of the EV1, which by the way wasn't actually that great of a car, but they still wanted the electric car so bad that they held a candlelit vigil at the junkyard where their cars were crushed, it, like like it was like a like a prisoner being executed or something like that. That was literally, and, and like, when is the last time you even heard of that for a product? You know, GM is stops the product. I mean, what? I, I mean, listen, man, they're not doing that for any other GM product. 
<laughs> Have you thought about doing the EV2? <laughs> you know? It's, it's kind of sometimes hard to get through these guys, you know. So, anyway, I think that's a very important thing. Um, so, generally, we could see, like, these oligopolies forming uh, or uh, duopolies, the, the, um, and then you get effective price fixing, and then they, they cut back on the R&D budget. Like, a, a kind of a silly one, frankly, is, like, like candy. Like, there's a, there's a candy oligopoly. <laughs> and it's like, when's the... We don't see much innovation in candy. So you're still working on the candy company. Candy? Is that yeah. <laughs> boring candy? Boring candy. Boring, boring candy. It's going to be boring candy. I, don't, I haven't seen a candy yet that's good enough to send out. But, um, and it's, yeah. Uh, but I, th I think it, it's, it's there's, there's like three companies or something that control all the candy in the world pretty much. Uh, and dog food. <laughs> yeah. There's somebody constructed like this, it's this, crazy conglomerate and and it's like and it's like dog food and baby food and candy and it's like all you know all the brands. yeah and it, hundreds of brands yeah you think you're buying from different companies but yeah. it all funnels up to like three companies or so something like that. don't send the rendering food to the candy company <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah, big so, candy <laughs> so you, you want to have like a good competitive forcing function so that uh, you have to make the product better uh, or or you'll lose. Like if you don't make the product better and, and, and improve the product for the end consumer, then, then that company should have relatively less prosperity compared to a company that makes better products. Um, now, now the car industry, you know, is, is actually pretty competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's good. Um, and uh, and, and so then the, the, the good thing about a competitive comp industry is then if, if you make a, a product that's better, it's going to do better in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this, this is Gene Wilder's old house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's amazing. It's, it's lovely. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, as well. thank, thank you. Really yeah, it's a good, it's a cool spot. And it's got a solar glass roof. Yeah. Oh, you, do you see that? Yeah, too, right? We didn't notice it, but yes. we checked it out the second time. Yeah, I'm good. waiting for my uh, three, so I, I'm waiting for version three. Well, whatever is they're going to put on, I don't care. Uh, version, give me version three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we saw it at the store in Torrance, actually. They've got yeah. it in the stores now. Yeah. Looks really good. Well, the the the... the, the it's in, actually designed such that you don't notice it. <clears throat> so, because like this, look at this old house. This is like a, it's an old house, I don't know, probably 50 years old, something like that. And, and it's quite quirky. So if you put something on that was like, that didn't blend in, that it, it, would, it would not look right. It would be pretty strident. And um, this had a black comp shingle roof. So I was like, okay, let's see if we can actually have it weave in and still feel natural, look good. and. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's sort of achieved that goal. Um, but yeah, there, this is a lovely, quirky little house. I'll show you around afterwards. It's got all sorts of weird things. Is it's it exactly Frank Lloyd what. House? Sorry. Is it Frank Lloyd? Right. No, I I don't think so. <laughs> I think it was just built in increments over time by probably several people. Um, but the, they they would have just knocked it down and built a giant house here. So it's like so glad they didn't. Yeah, it's super cool. So Gene Wilder is one of my favorite uh, actors, actually. So it's great, awesome movies. So so when when you come up with a product like the, the solar glass roof, I think a lot of people misunderstand that like your goal is to bring these crazy technologies to market and really create a change in the world. Yeah. And so I think it's fascinating that you do it through companies, and it seems like the fastest way to create that feedback loop and to really like get 
go from inventing something to millions of people using it right away. Yes. So like, like I, it seems like buying a Tesla mm -hmm. is almost like the best thing you could do to help the climate crisis because you're like turbocharging R&D and products and innovation. I, I feel like not enough people really understand that. Um, yeah, that, <clears throat> that, that is, I think there's lots of good things people can do for the climate, but just generally anything that is um, moving towards sustainable energy, um, whether it's sustainable energy create, um, um, generation through solar <clears throat> or with an electric vehicle, um, actually just, th just things like better insulation in a house just is, is really um, effective for energy consumption. Um, but but fun. Oh, geez, Morphin. <laughs> it's ingratiating. That's Marvin the Martian. I actually got him a little um, for Halloween. A little knitted Marvin the Martian cap. <laughs> he had the little, you know, the helmet with the. It looked super cute. You got enough, buddy. <laughs> So did you always know like, you know, business was the way you wanted to kind of attract, attack these problems versus say, you know, maybe a nonprofit or, you know, working as a college professor or something? I don't know. Uh, well, when I was in, in high school, I thought I'd most likely be doing physics at a particle accelerator. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was, um, in physics and computers. I mean, I got distinctions in two areas in physics and computer science and those were, yeah, so my two best subjects and, uh, and then I thought, okay, well, that I want, I want to figure out what's the nature of the universe, and um, so I, you know, go try to work on with people banging particles together, see what happens, um, and um, and then it, it sort of things went along, and the the superconducting super collider got cancelled in the U.S., and then actually was like, whoa, you know, what if I am working at a collider, I spent all these years, and then the government just cancels it. Wow. And then that would, I was like, I'm not going to do that. So, um, so it's like, so my, my, my well, we roll, roll back a little. Um, like, I was, I was trying to figure out what, what, when I was a kid, I had like this existential crisis and I was about 12 years old or something. And, and I was like, well, what does the world mean? What's it all about? Are we living some meaningless existence? And, and then, um, I made the mistake of reading Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, and, and I'm like, whoa, don't do that. Not a, to, not to, need to be a little older, I think. No, no, and actually, lately, these days, I sort of reread it, so I was like, you know, it's actually, he's not that bad. Uh, wait, I mean, he's, he's got issues, he's got issues, no question about it, but, but you know, it's, anyway. Um, so... Uh, but then I read uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams, uh, which was which is like quite a really quite a good book on philosophy, I think. And uh, I was like, okay, we don't really know what the answer is, obviously. Uh, so, but the universe, the universe is the answer. And that really, what are the questions we should be asking to better understand the nature of the universe? And so then, to the degree that we expand the scope and scale of consciousness, um, then we'll better be able to answer the ask the questions. Um, and understand the why we're here or what, what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And so sort of take the set of actions that are most likely to result in us understanding what questions to ask about the nature of the universe. Um, so, the, so therefore we, we, we must propagate uh, human civilization on Earth as far into the future as possible um, and become a multi-planet species to 
again, extend the scope and scale of consciousness and incre increase the probable lifespan of, of um, consciousness, which is going to be, I think, probably a lot of machine consciousness as well in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's the best we can do, basically. You know, and yeah, that's the best we can do. So, um, you know, and thinking about the various problems that we're facing, or, or what would most likely change the future. Um, the when they were in college, there were sort of five things that I thought would be. Um, I mean, I thought these were actually these, these, these. I would not regard this as a profound insight, but rather an obvious one. Uh, or the you know, the internet would fundamentally change humanity because it's it's like uh, humanity would become more of a superorganism because the internet is like the nova like a nova system. Mm -hmm. um, now suddenly, any part of the human human organisms anywhere would have access to all the information Amazing. instantly. So, yeah, like, hey, well, like imagine if you, if you didn't have a nervous system, you wouldn't know what's going on. Your fingers wouldn't know what's going on. Your toes wouldn't know what's going on. You'd have to do it by diffusion. Um, and uh, yeah, and the way information used to work was really by diffusion. One human would have to call another human. Or, 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 or write them, <laughs> yes, like if it was a, and a letter, <laughs> you'd have to write a letter, you'd have to hand that letter to another human. That would be carried through a bunch of things, find another person would give it to you. Extremely slow diffusion. Um, and if you wanted access to books, if you were not, did not have a library, you, were not, you don't have it. That's it. So um, now you have access to all the books instantly. Um, and... You, you, if you can be in a remote, like, you know, mountaintop jungle location or something and have access to all of humanity's information, if you've got a link to the internet, this is a fundamental, profound change. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I, I was on the internet early because of, uh, you know, in the physics community, that was pretty normal, although his uh, interface was, you know, almost entirely text and hard to use. Um, but, <clears throat> um, then another one would be obviously making life multiplanetary, making consciousness multiplanetary, um, the uh, um, changing uh, human genetics, um, which obviously I'm not doing, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> uh, it is a thorny subject, um, but it, it is being done with CRISPR and others. You know, it would, it, it will, it will become normal to, 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 I think, to change the human genome. Like, what's the opportunity? Like, why is that? something that's inevitable or well you know, I think for, for sure as far as say um, getting rid of diseases or propensity mm -hmm. to various diseases then you'd, that that's gonna be like the first thing that you'd want to edit out you know so it's like if you've got like your you know a situation where you're definitely gonna die of some kind of cancer or at age 55 you prefer to have that edit it out yeah definitely um so i think you know it's just edit that out it, 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 you know there's the, the, the gattaca sort of extreme thing where it's not merely edited out but it's like it's edited in for various enhancements and that kind of thing uh I, which probably will come too but i'm, I'm not saying I'm not, you know arguing for or against it i'm just saying this the more likely to come than not uh, down the road yeah so then and then ai um really major one so these are all big motivational factors uh, to yeah. know, keep our consciousness going. Oh, and, and it's, it's sustain sustainable, yes, yes, sustainable energy. So sustainable energy actually was something that 
I thought was important before the environmental implications became um, as obvious as they they are. So because if, if, if you mine and burn hydrocarbons, then you're going to run out of them. Because um, it, it's, it's not like it's not like mining sort of say metals, for example, if you you know, the, we, we recycle steel um, and aluminum and uh, because that's just, it's, it's it's not a change of energy state. Whereas if you if you take fossil fuels, you're taking some, some from a high energy state, converting it to a low energy state like CO2, uh, which is extremely stable. You know, so whereas we will never run out of metals, not a problem. Um, we will run out of, of mined hydrocarbons. Um, and then necessarily, if, if we've got billions, ultimately trillions of tons of hydrocarbons that were buried deep underground in solid liquid gas form whatever but they're deep underground you say you should move them from deep underground to the oceans and atmosphere you will have a change in the chemistry of the of the surface obviously um, and the, then there's just a certain probability associated with well how bad will that be um, and the range of possibilities goes from mildly bad to extremely bad uh, but then why would you run that experiment? That seems like the craziest experiment ever, especially since we have to go to sustainable energy anyway. <laughs> why, why would you run that experiment? It's just the maddest thing I've ever heard. I'm not saying there shouldn't be some use of hydrocarbons on Earth, but there just should be have the, have a, the correct price placed on CO2 production. And, and the obvious thing to do is have a, CO, a carbon tax. It's a no-brainer. Every, if, I don't know, the, 90 plus percent of economists would say this and I think of physicists and it's just the you know the market system works well if you've got a, the right price on things it's very very simple um, and, and if, you, if you've got a price of zero uh, effectively or very low then it's um, well people will behave accordingly so so it's just that's that's the thing that needs to get done I think it will get done um, and and then the the if, if over time as you raise the the price on on carbon, you can actually I think in, encourage a sequestration technologies over time, mm -hmm. um, and, and and there'll be a lot of innovation in that regard, and, and that's the right way to do it. Yeah. So you had these <clears throat> realizations about you know areas of big value, and you went and started Zip2, you sold it, got you know twenty million cash. <clears throat> You were the largest shareholder at pay, of PayPal at the time eBay acquired it. I think, you know, you got 160 million or something yeah. like that. Uh, you know, you have enough money basically for an entire lifetime. Why go and put your money into SpaceX, which is a huge, you know, risky operation or Tesla? Why not just kind of, you know, relax? <laughs> sure. What? So, yeah, basically... Um, you know, I, I graduated from, from, from Penn with, with basically physics and, and economics, um, and, uh, then <clears throat> I did a road trip to, uh, to Stanford, uh, with, with Robin Wren, who is in my physics class, um, and now works at Tesla, actually. Um, yeah, and he grew up in Shanghai, yeah. so, uh, yeah, he's a very smart guy. He ended up continuing at Stanford and I ended up going on deferment a couple days into the semester but I, I was going to be studying um, material science and the, the physics of high energy density capacitors for use in electric vehicles so so the intent was I was going to say okay I'm going to work on 
energy storage solutions for um, electric vehicles. And I'd worked at a company at called Pinnacle Research for a couple summers that did high, um, high energy density capacitors. I was going to try to do effectively like a solid state version of, of what they were doing with um, uh, yeah, it's going to get very complicated from a technical standpoint, but they were using a ruthenium tantalum oxide. Ruthenium is extremely rare and expensive. You cannot scale that. So it's like, can, can you find a substitute for ruthenium? But we were able to get to uh, energy densities comparable to a lettuce battery, but with incredibly high power density. So well, what do you want I can go down a deep rabbit hole there. But What's the purpose <laughs> of a supercapacitor in an EV capacitor? No, I think uh, with the advent of uh, high-energy lithium-ion batteries, a capacitor is not not the right path. What, were, what was your thinking back then, though, that made you think it could be useful for EVs? I wanted to use um, advanced chip-making equipment uh, to make capacitors that were precise at a molecular level. Um, so at the, you know, just a level of precision that, that was sort of unheard of in, in capacitors. Like, capacitors' energy is a function of its area. Oh, and, and a separation distance. So if you have if you can have very tiny separation distance, um, and you can and you can inhibit quantum tunneling, like I said, how do you, things get pretty esoteric? So you're going to inhibit quantum tunneling, get a very short gap, um, um, and and then you could, in theory get to very high energy densities you, um, by making capacitors in the way that you would make a. a uh, an, an x86 processor um, and since there's there were, there were tens of millions of dollars going into chip making R&D that I thought there might be a way to make an advanced capacitor using chip making equipment in, instead of the conventional means so is it off the table ultra capacitor it's unnecessary okay <laughs> <laughs> interesting it's unnecessary it, it, it's it, it's it, I think I think it's I think it probably is physically possible but it's it's unnecessary at this point. I mean, I know a lot of people were talking about Maxwell and they had been working on some stuff uh, with capacitors. The, yeah. the funny thing is that when I was doing the, um, my internships at uh, this uh, advanced capacitor company called Pinnacle Research, which was in Las Gatas, we, we talked a lot about Maxwell. And, and Maxwell was also trying to make high density capacitors. Now Tesla acquired Maxwell. Mm -hmm. Full circle. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a big deal. That's great. Um, great to know. Maxwell has a bunch of technologies that are that that where if they're applied in the right way, I think can be have a, a very big impact. Like the dry electrode stuff. That would be one of them. Yes. <laughs> That's a big deal. Yeah, for sure. Much much bigger deal than it may seem. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, it, and there's like, a few other things, but yeah. With with the uh, the space that it takes up for the ovens, that you know, for the current technology, you can save all that that real estate space now. That's one aspect, and the cost reduction, the weight savings. I mean, there's so many pluses, right? Yes, I mean, there's many things there, but uh, I'll have to wait until you know whatever battery day, which uh, is you know hopefully in a few months. But I, I think we've got some pretty exciting things to share. Um, so. Yeah, Gally's very excited. Yeah, it seems <laughs> like the, the pace of the innovation of the, the battery thing has just taken off. Like since you guys have more capital and being able to like have the Gigafactory be vertically integrated, just seems like no other car company is making that many batteries. So they're not even thinking about what comes next. But 
that They're huge bet, you know. Man, not even come close. <laughs> <laughs> Taycan, two hundred and one no. miles. Not ninety. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, it's true. Uh, the, the other car companies just really want to outsource battery te- technology. Not, not even, not even making the like this battery module and cell, uh-huh. um, but they're they're obviously outsourcing the cells, but even yeah. outsourcing the modules and the packs. Yeah. You know, and and it's like they're really not thinking about fundamental chemistry improvements and it, so. I should say a bit about like like electric vehicles and 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 so, or sustainable energy in general. It, you know, I so said it, it was it was pretty. I think obvious to not not just me to me but to a lot of people. You know, even go back thirty years or, or longer, that we must have uh, a sustainable energy solution. In fact, it's it's total logical. If it's un- if it's, if it's a, if it's not sustainable, we must at some point find an alternative to it. Mm-hmm. And so even if there were no environmental impact to uh, the sort of a fossil fuel economy, then we would run out of them, and then we'd have economic collapse, and well, civilization would fall apart. Yeah. So, so that, that that was actually my initial motivation for electric vehicles. It's like, okay, we've got to have a solution that does not require um, mining hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 is sustainable to, in the long term. It, it, it was not actually initially from an environmental standpoint because I did not realize the gravity of the environmental situation at that time. Um, and I thought, actually, for sure, by now we'd have electric cars. Are we back on the moon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Why are we not back on the moon? It's mm-hmm. insane. <laughs> if you said told somebody in '69 that yeah, that we'd not be back on the moon, and in like 2020, that'd be like, oh, you probably you might have gotten punched, honestly, because I'd be like, yeah. you're just, it's it's like ins- so insultingly rude to the future of humanity. <laughs> Because they'd be like, "What is wrong with you?" Yeah. It's encouraging. SpaceX is encouraging, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like we should have a share of a base on the moon. We should have sent people to Mars. None of that's occurred. You know, it's got to. We've got to make that happen. Yeah. So, so, but on the sustainability front, it was really, like I said, it, not so much, initially not so much from an environmental standpoint, but from um, a necessity of, of replacing a finite resource um, in order to ensure that civilization could continue to grow. And then the urgency of it became much more obvious, like, wow, we really better do something because uh, the environmental stuff is becoming quite serious. Um, and the, the, the inertia of large existing companies is just hard to appreciate. They just mm-hmm. want to keep doing the same thing and maybe 5% different every year, maybe 5% different. Um, big companies hate change. So, um, so then the... You know, at the time that Tesla, you know, was creator, we, you know, there was no, no one was doing electric cars. No, there weren't really startups. There weren't the big car companies weren't doing it. Uh, GM and Toyota canceled their EV programs. Now everybody's doing it right now, like everybody and their mom. Everybody's talking mom. about it. Apparently, <laughs> 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 the mom is doing it. Yeah, <laughs> and we would all like to congratulate about the Gigafactory Three. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And I would like to know, like, why China is the best country to build the first foreign gigafactory. China is the biggest um, consumer of cars in the world, so uh, it's the biggest. So that 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 alone would be enough to do it. Um, I think also there was a lot of uncertainty about uh, tariffs and and you know 
it's like we potentially would be unable to sell effectively in China if we did not have a factory locally, yes. uh, or at least unable to sell at prices that weren't extremely high. But those are really the two two main mm-hmm. reasons. Um, I think that. Um, but I think there's also a third important reason that that there's just so much uh, talent um, and drive in China that I think it's a good place to do a lot of things, um, and uh, the evidence is, is there in the incredible progress in the factory, um, which was um, built with very very high quality in a very short period of time, um, and. Um, the, the the cars coming out of the of Shanghai right. are, are already very high quality. Like, oh, I can tell, and yeah. the the run they rate great, is amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love yeah. that they use the uh, Chinese badge as well. It's like a symbol of pride, mm-hmm. and sure. you know, made yeah. made in China. It's, it's yeah, it's cool. It's super cool. How did Tesla manage to get the first wholly owned foreign car company in China? I mean, a factory. Uh, well, I've I've went to. China many times, and they kept saying that we would have to do this, you know, majority local owned yeah. venture. Oh, and, and I said that, well, and we had to partner with someone. I said, well, oh, you know, we're a little late to the dance here, you know, so mm-hmm. who would we partner with, you know? Um, <laughs> there's nobody, nobody left. And, and, uh, and also, we're just a little company, so, you know, we're, you know, the, the, I saying we should get married. I'm like, we're a bit young. <laughs> that's a good example <laughs> but yeah you know and, and then so then um, you know but and, and then also as I point out like you know there's so many Chinese companies that are going to you know they're establishing factories in or in the US I mean there's like Faraday Future and that kind of thing and, and that's 100% owned by them and so I mean to be fair it should be allowed that an American car company should be able to own its factory in China as well um, and so we, you know, talked to them for over a number of years, and they eventually said, "Okay, well, we'll, we'll change the law." So they changed the law. But now, now other other companies can do it as well. Um, so it's not just limited to Tesla. And and how much of that production hell, like learnings, have really enabled? Because one of the I don't want like to bring up capex, but one of my favorite things is the stats in the shareholder letter. If it's so much cheaper, not only faster, but yeah. it seems like. Yeah. The, you guys have learned so much from this, the Fremont factory, and that really enabled like kind of a turbocharged uh, build for Shanghai. Yeah, the <clears throat> I, I think the, the big difference is is like we are way less dumb than we were. <laughs> um, so the the foolishness of capital expenditures was very high, um, and it's less high now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and then with the the Shanghai factory, we designed out all of or, or as much of the the foolishness as we could think of um, that exists at Fremont um, and at Nevada. Um, so we just made, made a lot of decisions that weren't smart, and um, and we, we designed those out so that such the production line is much simpler. Um, so it's much simpler and and better implemented. Um, and then um, we also found like that those, in most cases the suppliers were more efficient in China as well uh, than in the U.S. So um, but we've also managed to get a lot more output from existing equipment in, in the U.S. as well. So uh, the Model 
three body line in in Fremont, for example, was only ever meant to do five thousand cars model threes a week, and mm-hmm. it's doing seven thousand. Wow, nice. So, nice. and and it, with with was turning off a bunch of unnecessary things that were being done. So, um, it it, I mean, there's just a, there was a lot of foolish things that we were doing. So, um, and and we changed some of the designs and um, made it easier to. It would you know it's it's like a, hundreds of little things um, to make it to make it easier to build and and so being able to get forty percent more output off the same line obviously makes a makes a big difference um, and and while while reducing the cost the, the marginal cost of production and and I, and I think improving the quality of the car um, so it's it's all good good stuff it was the result of a ton of hard work by, um, by a lot of people. So, yeah, and, but we, we're, it was kind of nece- necessary in that we, we, there was we didn't really have a place to put a second Model Three uh, body line. So it's like either we either make this one go faster, or we will not be able to ex- um, achieve production. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Model Three body line in Shanghai is um, much much simpler than the one in. Uh, and I say that in a good way, um, then the, because it has the same the same end result. So if if, if you if, you know, um, and and but but it, it's a, a much easier to understand. There's just getting rid of unnecessary movement. There's a lot of unnecessary movement in the Fremont body line, but not in Shanghai. Um, so we were talking about a lot of Tesla stuff, but we kind of wanted to ask you about your personal history because we were saying, sure. you were saying how there's some misconceptions you would like to make straight. I mean, I know Ashley Vance wrote a book about you. I just read oh, May's lovely sure. book and it was really wonderful. I loved it and learned a little bit more history about your family and you. But um, what are some of the misconceptions that you would like to correct? You know, most of this is just it ended up being kind of water under the bridge that people didn't notice that much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a sort of, so some stories in there where it, it sounds like I like fired people all of a sudden and arbitrarily, uh, which was not the case. Uh, there, um, you know, the, the, it just actually asked somebody who uh, who who didn't know what was going on, and then that person was suddenly not there, and they didn't know why. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I <laughs> you know, I, I definitely do not fire talented people, and you know, unless there's no option. So. Um, and absolutely not, not, not without warning. Or like keep hearing you say we. Like it sounds like you're always thinking of everybody. You're, I, I see you as a very selfless person. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I mean seriously. I mean yeah. It's like from the age of twelve. It sounds like you've been thinking about how to help humanity. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be sort of like some, you know, the sort of savior or something like that. You know, but it's it's really just that. Uh, if, if it just seems like the, it just, I don't know, seems like the obvious thing to do. I, I can't, like, I'm not sure why you do anything else. Um, you, you know, we, we want to maximize happiness of the population and propagate into the future as far as possible and understand the nature of reality. Um, and from that, I think everything else follows. Um, I saw you on Twitter, um, like talking about how 
like people are having this rumor that you've been wealthy your whole life and that would be like the only reason you became successful and you've debunked that and can you like share more about your upbringing and what led you to going to <laughs> North America? Um, sure. Um, I was in, in South Africa and uh, it seemed like w w wherever there was, like a lot of the advanced technology in the world was being produced in America mm -hmm. um, and Silicon Valley especially. So I wanted to be where where I could sort of be have an impact on technology so that's or, or be involved in the creation of, of new technology. So that's what prompted me to go to um, at first Canada because I could get citizenship in Canada through my mom and then ultimately to the US. Um, but yeah, I just uh, left South Africa um, um, when I was 17 and landed in Montreal. I had like, I don't know, about $2,000 Canadian. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I started staying in a youth hostel for a few days and then there was this, you could buy a ticket to go across the country for a hundred bucks uh, and stop along the way. And so um, I did what that and uh, just took a greyhound across Canada and saw all these like little towns. Well, we were getting, <laughs> I, I didn't have much. I had like a backpack like, and a, a suitcase books, but the, 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 that the bus company, greyhound, they unloaded it, uh, in one of the cities and then the bus left without my, my stuff. Oh, that's nice. So I literally had nothing. <laughs> All your books. But your clothes too? Um, actually, weirdly, I think I might have had the books thing, but not my, <laughs> my clothes. <laughs> yeah, because I needed, I was just sitting in the bus station reading, waiting for the bus to get ready. Yeah. Um, and I think I had the books, but not, not, no, but no clothing. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, but I managed to get to Swift Current, Saskatchewan, um, and then my, my it's, it's your cousin, cousin's son, yeah, has a wheat farm there, and I worked on the wheat farm for about six weeks. Wow. Um, wow. And so I turned 18 in Saskatchewan, um, it, in this town called Swift Current. So that was summertime, right? It was June. Yeah, yeah, yeah June 28th. So, because I've been there in the winter, and it's like minus 40. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be traveling. <laughs> yeah. Did you so, ice skate? Did you try ice skating? No, it was it was quite warm. Okay. Yeah, oh, well, I mean, in the winter. Did you stay for the winter? Were you there in the winter? No, I was just yeah. there, I was there for about six weeks. Oh, you're lucky. Yeah. You survived. That's good. Yeah. So <laughs> it's I was cold there. Literally work, working on the wheat farm. Um, did a barn raising and I cleared out the wheat bins. You know, the grain grain silos and that kind of thing. And um, I just worked the vegetable patch. Basically, just doing various things. Was your mind just thinking of what you're what you're going to do after that? Yeah, I was trying to figure out what, what, what I do next. Uh, don't know what to do. Um, so then, but I ended up getting back on the bus and went to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a half uncle there um, who was kind of in the lumber industry. Mm -hmm. um, he like made lumber like lumber equipment. Sounds like the Northwest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, so I ended up chainsawing logs and working on uh, the slumber mill. Um, and uh, cleaning out the, 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 the where, they, where they boil the pulp in these like cra crazy sort of boiler rooms. Um, and that, that might be the hardest job I've had actually, because you have to like crawl through this little tunnel um, in a hazmat suit and then uh, it, with a with, uh, uh, shovel with, with, and, and then 
shovel is sort of steaming sand and and, and mulch out of the <laughs> the boilers to clean them out. Um, and and you had to like there was only one entrance or exit, which was like a little little tunnel. If you're claustrophobic, you could be real real bad. And and then you could you shovel the 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 sand and the mulch through the tunnel uh, and it would actually block the tunnel and then somebody else would reach in and shovel it out from the other side so just big enough long enough that if you have a shovel with a long handle the so one person on the inside can shovel it far enough that someone on the outside can shovel it out Whoa. and then yet to rotate every 15 minutes to avoid getting hypothermia oh. <laughs> yeah, and there's intense. no safeties to just a man looking out for you there's just two people kind of paired up so if like one person collapses and you go to call somebody but it'd be really hard to drag somebody out i have to say that it does not seem safe because if the tunnel gets blocked trying to get the and block that tunnel would be very difficult in a short period of time mm-hmm. so um but it was the highest paying job at the, the, at the employment office so, <laughs> so that's why i was like okay the other jobs were like i don't know eight dollars an hour and this one was eighteen dollars an hour you tie your clothes and they're all gone. <laughs> well, they, gave, they did give you a hazmat suit. So, oh, yeah. so yeah. how long did you have? To, did you do that job for? Uh, like four days. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was, it was. Then it was done. Yeah. yeah. The, the, you said it was like a short-term thing, cleaning the grain bins, uh, cleaning the, the, yeah, the should say the boiler rooms. So what right. was next? We yeah. were in boiler rooms, and then. Yeah. Sky. So it was basically. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it literally, it was like a lumberjack is chainsawing uh, logs, um, and. Uh, just doing lumber, lumber stuff basically um, for a few months there, and then applied for college and went to uh, Queen's University in um, Kingston, um, and uh, was there for a couple of years. And then uh, somebody there suggested I should apply to UPenn, and uh, I I didn't think I'd be able to go because I I I paid, paid for my own way through university just. Which is actually not that hard in Canada because the the tuition system, yeah, the tuition is highly subsidized in Canada. So, um, so with you know with basically some if you if you just sort of work during the the summer and semester and take out some loans and some get some scholarships, you can pretty much go to any college in Canada, I think. But I met someone who was at UPenn and and they said you should at least apply and I applied and they they actually gave me like quite a big scholarship. So. Uh, that, that allowed me to go there and so then I did the physics and economics um, there and, uh, and and then that that's what led to the road trip to Stanford with uh, Robin Wren um, and, uh, and and then I, that it was during that that summer that I was, was like okay if I can either spend several years kind of doing a PhD in not that I care about the PhD actually, but I just needed a lab. Um, but I, I could either spend a bunch of years working in a lab, um, and maybe it would, maybe the technology would pan out, or maybe it wouldn't. Um, but the internet would, would was definitely about to go supernova in '95. So I was like, okay, look, I, I can always come back to working on electric cars, basically, um, and which obviously I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but the internet is not going to wait. So, was, uh, so then I put um, Sanford on deferment and um, started Zip2, which was really just, 
you know, we started off with maps and directions, yellow pages, white pages, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, it was, you know, for, for best of my knowledge, the first maps and directions on the internet. So, uh, and there's still some like patents I have. Uh, well, I don't have many more, but like they've obviously lapsed at this point, but um, for maps and directions and yellow pages and advertising and stuff. And I, I wrote the whole, the whole initial code base I wrote personally because there wasn't anywhere else. It was just me. So, um, and I only had a few thousand dollars and my brother joined and he brought like $5,000, which was a lot. Yeah, at least for the first few months, there was literally only one computer. So the website, when the website wasn't working, it was because I was compiling code. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, and even to get an internet connection was pretty hard. But there was an internet service provider on the floor below us. We were more or less squatted in this office. The landlord was, was like out of the country or something, and nobody was using it. So, so you lived in there? Yeah. I think I read that in May's book, you showered at the YMCA then. That's right. Yeah. That's smart, though. I mean, you, you were thrifty. You did what you had to do. We just like had no no money, so we're gonna do. Yeah. What did people think about Zip2 generally? Was it like seen as a crazy idea, or like did people even understand the internet back then? Most people did not understand the internet. Most people didn't know. Even on Sand Hill Road, like we tried pitching people to invest in an internet company. Most of the VCs we pitched to had never used the internet. Do you remember some of the VC firms you went to on Sand Hill? Um, I remember it's, most of the time we wouldn't take a meeting, and if they did take a meeting, they were pretty bored and not uh, <laughs> said like, "Who's who's made money in the internet?" No, we're like, "No one." Okay, um, but but the, the sea change occurred when um, Netscape went public. Yeah. So, uh, but the first thing I, I tried to do was not to start a company. I tried to get a job at Netscape, but they didn't reply to me. Oh, no. oh. So I just and I tried and I tried hanging out in the lobby at Netscape. I don't know who to talk to. I was, I was really too shy to talk to anyone. I don't know. So it's like okay, I can't get a job at the only internet company that you know that that, that does internet software. So then I will try writing software. Um, so that's um, kind of what what happened there. Yeah, and then my, like I said, my brother came down and joined. This is like all like late '95. Um, and then in January 95, I think it was, the, um, uh, there, was there was a lot more interest in the internet stuff following Nets the Netscape IPO. Um, and that's the, the software, software was more impressive, I guess. So then we, then more, da more David Allen invested. Um, so their VC firm on Sand Hill Road. Um, and they, they invested, I think it was like $3 million for effectively 60% of the company. Wow. Um, which we thought was crazy. Uh, they're like, well, these people, they're going to give us money for nothing? <laughs> <laughs> well, they must be mad. <laughs> yeah, so they, that, this, this seems like... Like crazy that they would give so much money for a company that consists at the time of about five people. Um, like literally, I think five people at the time. So, uh, but anyway, it, it worked out well for them in the end. So we, we 
then we, we hired a lot more people. Um, we built out the service, and uh, and then we, we also ended up writing a bunch of software to bring newspapers online. So Knight Ritter, New York Times Company, Hearst, uh, we all became investors and, and customers. Um, and at, at one point, Zip2 um, was responsible for a significant section of the New York Times Company website. Yeah, so I got to know the media industry pretty well. And uh, but but uh, over over what I worked really happened with with Zip2 is it effectively got too too much. There was there was too much control um, by the existing media companies. Um, so they had too many board seats and too too much voting control, yeah. and that they kept uh, trying to push the company down directions that made no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, like Zip2 actually had uh, really good software. I'd say software that's comparable in some ways more advanced than, say, a Yahoo or Excite at the time, but it was just not being used properly, um, and it was all being forced through uh, through media companies um, who would then not not use it. You know, so it's like yeah. it's okay, we've got the best technology, but it's it's not being deployed properly. So. But fortunately, uh, Compaq came along, and they, um, Compaq, Compaq had acquired digital equipment, and digital equipment had um, owned AltaVista, which at the time was probably the best search best search engine. So they thought that their idea was they will combine AltaVista with a bunch of other internet companies and try to compete, create a competitor to Yahoo um, or Excite. That, that was the Excite used to be a big thing, amazingly. Um, and Yahoo used to be a big thing. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah how now it's like owned by Verizon or something. Yeah. And there was AOL. AOL. Yeah. AOL. Back then. Mm-hmm. Yahoo is a crazy story. They, you know, yes. almost, they failed to acquire Google twice. You know, Microsoft offered them like 40 billion or something and they turned it down. And then Alibaba saved them out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Alibaba stake was worth more than the whole, whole company at one point. By like, yeah, a huge amount. Right. It was basically a proxy for Alibaba shares training. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But yeah. at, at one point, at, I mean, at that time, like if you go back to say 98, 99, Yahoo seemed like an unstoppable juggernaut. Yeah. <laughs> like literally, like yeah. this company will, you know, is a behemoth. <laughs> Nobody could possibly defeat them. Um, but anyway, um, and, and where's Compaq today? Yeah, so. Uh, but but that, that that was their idea, which is you know, at least if executed well, could have made sense. Um, Kimbo, wow. really serious? Wow. Woo. Yeah. What are you What are you guys doing? We're recording a podcast. Uh, Very cool. Yeah. How do you want me to join? Um. Oh, yeah. Oh, pull up a chair. Yeah. That's awesome. So, what do you remember about Zip Two? Yeah, um, yeah, we remember. Yeah, so but uh, then the internet came along, we became this huge thing. I mean, it was always it was always there, but it became a big deal. And then Elon was working on uh, working in Silicon Valley, and as I remember it, you know, I never heard uh, a meeting where uh, some of the yellow pages companies were thinking of doing sort of online yellow pages. And no, where would I? Why would I have been in a meeting? Uh, no, <laughs> This is a long time ago. <laughs> anyway, you, you called me up and you said we should do, you think you can do, uh, do a better job, so we think we can do a better Maybe job. Maybe you made so. that up to try and get Kimball interested. How would I be in a meeting with Yellow Pages Company? I have no idea. That's what I remember. But <laughs> <laughs> well, what's your version of that? <laughs> I don't even know any Yellow Pages. I, I agree with you. I agree with you now. 
but but um so it was like uh, i think uh, april of 1995 we started working on it and the um uh, uh i guess the idea was fairly simple to take mapping and apply it to the internet and there were there were a few other companies trying to do it but no one with uh, uh very the very cool technology of of uh sort of what was called vector-based mapping, which is which is what, what we all use today, where the map is actually alive, you know, not, not just a picture. That was very ahead of its time. You know. uh, I think we were the first. I, I, I know there were other p people putting maps on the internet, but I think we were the first to put vector-based mapping, which is what the kind of technology used today on, on the internet, and door-to-door -door directions. So it was cool. I, I remember my brother and I pressing go on, on his server at our office, and it took about 60 seconds for the first door-to-door door, door -door directions to come up on the wow. screen <laughs> and even oh 60 God. seconds was amazing yeah, we were like sure. this is incredible door-to-door <laughs> -door directions to anywhere this is just amazing and um it might seem amazing at the time definitely yeah. seemed amazing at the time yeah, yeah it's like now it's like so like absolutely that. normal but um this was like an impossible thing <laughs> it was so cool and uh, using Java, Elon had coded a, a, a interactive map, which again, all super normal stuff today. But the ability to just draw a square and zoom in or zoom out—that was just unheard of uh, technology. Draw <laughs> <laughs> <Or> square. <laughs> yeah, you remember that? It was like a little, little red square on the on a, on a browser. It was that was unusual. Yeah. Yes, you could just like yeah. Well, you cheated if you're using Java applets. Yeah, but this was when Java sucked and it was barely. Yeah, this worked. was like the, probably the most. It's ninety-five. Got, I think we even got some sort of recognition because it was the most advanced Java application on on Java at the time because it was so ridiculously hard. hard. It was it was a really crappy technology at the time, oh. but this this was done on it. Oh, wow. The thing is, that if if you if you downloaded the the Java app, we could we could uh, transmit the vector data not just a bitmap mm -hmm. and this is what, when everyone was on a modem right. so if somebody's on like yeah. you know 28 kilobits modem or for, you know trying to download an, a map image mm -hmm. would take forever whereas if you had but downloading the vector data so that locally rendered using the, the, the java applet was super was relatively speaking super fast mm -hmm. yeah. that's what made it cool yeah i mean yeah even like vector maps are even google maps are using like raster maps a few years ago like it seems like very out of its time. <laughs> well, we, we were the but first. I, guess, I, I believe, I believe we, the two of us were the first humans to see maps and door-to-door -door directions on the internet, which, which I think is pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah. How, Garmin came out. How, when did Garmin first launch? Um, well, they weren't internet-based, right? So you could, you could... Actually, I don't think Garmin was even a player at this point. It was, uh, it was, Navtech was the only place that we were... That's where we got the data from. Yeah. And they were building it for for Hertz Neverlost, which came out a few years later. You know those yeah, yeah. things that no one uses in the the GPS <laughs> systems. Um, really, really bad technology. But the actual mapping data was amazing, and so we took that and uh, applied it to the internet. We were 22 and 23 at the time. It had cost them 300 million dollars to build this data, and they gave it to us for free with a simple contract saying, if you ever make any money on this, you've got to you got to come talk sure. to us. And wow. that's, that's how we got it. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, you can, so it's amazing what, you, what happens if you ask. Ask nicely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also part of it was these guys had been working so hard on the tech and no one had ever seen what they were doing. Yeah. 
because it was not on the internet and it was not being used for for hertz and so it was just they were excited that someone would use the data and it would they, people could see what they they've been working on so how did you get guys get the engineering chops to pull this off because it sounds like you were so young you didn't really have any help and then you built this like cutting edge piece of technology i mean you know some coding from i don't know what time what age but Publish your first like Blastar game, right? Yeah, when he, I think it was twelve. Did you write any other cool stuff back then? Other yeah, I wrote a bunch of games. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, and, and then like occasionally software for people that ask for software, you know. You also work for a video game company. Yeah, I finally it was called um, Rocket Science. Yeah. By the way, we took a SpaceX tour yesterday. It was insane. That was, Keep was, that, that was amazing. Oh yeah, it was so good. It's like Batman's lair in there. <laughs> That's right. It's really cool. It really is amazing. But it gives you perspective on what Tesla's doing because the technology is so advanced and there, there's, you know, interchange of information there. Like the, I know they used the Inconel fuse, right? It was from SpaceX when they couldn't get the, the power output, right? It kept burning up the fuse and the, and the, the performance models. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see the SpaceX tech being applied to Tesla. I think I think there's yeah. a joint there's one joint employee between SpaceX and Tesla and it's, really? it's the materials. Is it the materials engineer? What about Elon? Uh, I'm of course Elon. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. In addition to Elon. Because if you, there's just not that many humans on the planet that know how to do this stuff. For sure. Well, it sounded like back in the old days, it was was it just Elon doing the coding? Or I mean, I did a little for like HTML front you end, still doing but any it wasn't Elon? mine. Yeah. Uh, not recently, uh, but no, there was there was we had no money, so you couldn't employ him for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wrote, I just wrote all the software. And you worked through the night, right? You just never. Yeah, according yeah. to my book, you worked. just never slept. I, <laughs> I mean, we we lived in a little office. I think this address was four seventy Sherman Way in. Uh, yeah. In Palo Alto, it was probably. It's about the size of this room here. Wow. Yeah, it was probably like 15 feet wide by 30 feet long, with a little little closet in the back. And we would um, we, we we couldn't afford a place to sleep or like a like a house, a home or apartment. So we would sleep in it, and it had a couch that was a futon, and we would pull out the futon, take turns sleeping on the futon or the floor. Although he coded a lot at wow. night, so I usually got the futon at night. Um, uh, and we had, we had to code it at night because the server, when the internet was live, needed to be functional. And we just had data for the Bay Area at the time, so we were just kind of making sure that the people in the Bay Area could use it. And then, um, uh, and then we had a little, little mini fridge with a cooking stove on it, and we'd cook uh, simple things, you know, like pasta sauce and pasta and things like that. That would be as cheap as dirt. People think you, it's expensive to eat real food. It's actually really cheap. Yeah. You know, you cook yeah. vegetables, pasta, and beans, stuff. beans super cheap. Yeah. It was absolutely the cheapest. Yeah. And then and then we would go eat at Jack in the Box, which I can still <laughs> still kind of shiver a little. <laughs> and I still I haven't eaten there for for probably twenty years uh, or longer, maybe twenty two years, and I can still probably recite the entire menu. Yeah, we cycle through the menu at Jack in the Box because it's walking it was like a, it's a few blocks away from. And it was open 24 hours. Open 24 hours. Yeah. Trying to get you know, dinner in Palo Alto after 10 is a very different. Zero. Yeah. yeah. So did they know you very well at, at Jack in the Box? Well, they didn't really. No. <laughs> no. And I remember one time I got a milkshake and, and I, I was so tired. It was like four, 4 in the morning and just needed to get some sugar for the, for the rest of the night. And, and there was something in it. And I remember just flicking it out and just pretending it didn't exist and just kept drinking my milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> It was, 
it was like that, we were that kind of like not in the zone to go back into Jack in the Box and argue about a milkshake, but I don't want to not drink the milkshake. And part of the reason their food was like so cheap is that they had uh, some people I think died of food poisoning. Yes. Oh, yes. It was right around that time when they got into a food poisoning scare. <laughs> so, yeah. so bad. It was just very cheap to eat there. <laughs> and it I figured, like, you know, they probably, have, you know, have taken some action because after the food poisoning. Yeah. So, <laughs> hopefully, yeah, that's it's just like eat a little bit of it. Does it just taste funny? <laughs> Stop eating if it tastes funny. <laughs> you run out of things to eat because it, after like the seventeenth chicken fajita pita, you like chicken fajita pita. Can't do it. The and teriyaki bowl. Yeah, remember that teriyaki bowl? Was that one good? It's, it's actually it varied, but it was it was edible. It was so yeah. bad. Which one? Was? The teriyaki bowl. Teriyaki bowl wasn't bad. There was the yeah. sort of uh, sourdough uh, grilled grilled cheese thing that was wasn't bad. Yeah, I honestly didn't mind it. Though, really. so yeah. Those were the good old days, right? I mean, it was honestly good days. I mean, we just we were just hoping that people would let us stay in the country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We weren't really that worried about what we were eating. We, we, were, we were just doing everything we could to, uh, to, get, to, to get someone to support the company. We didn't really understand, I didn't understand the venture capital world that much. So we were doing a seed round, an angel round, and doing our best to talk to everyone and anyone we could find. Uh, we had a very good friend with us, Greg Curry, who now passed away, who was older than us by about 10 years, I think. And, yeah. Uh, was a wonderful mentor, helped us out and uh, put a little money in as well. And and then uh, I did a lot of the work to just find, just network with people. I think our uh, with our first salesman who was selling Yellow Pages ads for us uh, was a real estate agent who knew another person who knew this other person who helped us who helped us in raise or put together. We ended up not doing the round, but put together a, a round of like. Two hundred thousand dollars or something. Yeah, and then um, we did like part of it or something. I don't yeah, know. but I think once we had the Java Java map, which was really quite impressive. I mean, if you've never seen, if you're if you've never seen Google Maps or Yahoo Maps before, it really is a remarkable thing to see. We we started to go to uh, we got it, we got some audiences with some venture capitalists, and it just went from we were starving. We had no car. Well, the car we had had broken. The wheel and, fell off. Huh? The wheel, wheel fell off. Yeah, wheel, the wheel fell, fell off. Yeah. What kind of car was it? I remember that. It was an old yeah, BMW 3 yeah, yeah. Was it the one you went We did a road nice. trip yeah. across oh, the country. Great yeah, my, the one that my mom has some pictures of. So I, think there's, I think there's still a... a there's, a there's a carve in the, t in the road at Page Mill and El Camino where the, the wheel, road came off. wheel fell off and, and, the, and the guy, literally kid in the intersection, just drove it without the wheel to the, to the side. So there's this arc yeah, it's, it's, it's of a much line in Page Mill that Road that has never been repaired. It, the whole car is just falling apart. So. Uh, yeah. It's like the point at which the wheel falls off. It's time to go to the junkyard. Remember the night before you met the venture campus, you and I were at Kinko's till two in the morning. No, that was that, that was way more stress. That was way later because we already had the deal, but we were I we were not. I don't know if you were, but I was not legally in America, so I was illegally there. I mean, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I was I was legally there, but but I was meant to be doing student work. Oh yeah, right. Oh. I, so, I, just, I had a student work visa. Yeah, you, you, were, you were doing a P, yeah. you were supposed to be doing a PhD in Stanford and yeah. decided not to. So and I, so wow. it was like I was allowed to do work, sort of supporting yeah. whatever, you know. Exactly. Know. Whereas, whereas I actually I, I, I try to get a visa, but there's just there's just not no, no visa you can get. 
to do a startup. Yeah, I fortunately nobody was paying you anything. Might either. have changed, but back then for sure. No. <laughs> and so, so we ended up getting getting <laughs> yeah. a. We got a deal from uh, from from Moore David out and uh, this uh, really high, well-respected VC firm, and we had to break the news to them that 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 we take the bus. We took the bus to get to to the offices. We don't have a car and we don't have an apartment, and we're illegal. No, 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 no you're illegal. I was legal. I was legal, but my visa was going to run out in two years. Okay. Yeah, but I was definitely, visa, I was definitely, I, we needed to get student. it sorted. And so uh, they were great. I mean, the, yeah. the, the lead investor, his wife was from Canada. They, they knew the whole challenge of being an immigrant. And we had Canadian passports. And so uh, they, they funded the company and they gave us some money to each buy a car. And they gave us a salary so we could rent an apartment, and they had a, we I got a, a visa uh, through through the company, but but the, the day the morning we were supposed to present to the partners, I went to Toronto because my mother was freaking out because she needed her computer fixed, and I was what? Like, really? <laughs> seriously, this is brutal. So I so I, I flew out there, planning to fly back on Sunday, and the meeting was on Monday, and I get to the airport on Sunday, and um, the the border control are they they call me out they're like you're 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 going down to work you're not going down for 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 travel i was like no 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 i'm going down to work i explained uh actually no i didn't i i, I said i am not going to work because i think that's what i was supposed to say but the lawyers told me not to say anything and so they they rejected me from the border and so i'm supposed to would do the presentation with you on the next morning and so a friend of mine came to pick me up at the airport and drove me across the border and we went to the, the the buffalo border and just said we're going to go see the david letterman show <laughs> that's hilarious and the border control guy was like yeah go ahead so oh, wow that's amazing i got i got on the, the late night flight from buffalo to san francisco and uh, we made the meeting in the morning so Wow. Yeah, I mean, technically, you were not going down to work because that would have required meant you were being paid then, something. Then I would need. You yeah, were, yeah, I wasn't actually paid anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah, technically, we weren't actually. No, you're right. You're not actually breaking the law. We were not breaking the law because we we were not being paid anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It's like it was a yeah. So. I should have told them that at the border control. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it was very By frustrating. Work, do you mean getting things. paid for something? No, not doing that. No, yeah, you're right. Exactly. <laughs> we were not not being paid. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um. But yeah, so so then uh, they they approved the deal that Monday, and we started building Zip Two, you know. And um, it wasn't a business model for you know back in those days. Well, it was it was kind of like a pre like Yelp is like is but business model was similar to sort of Yelp. Yeah. But it was at a time when most businesses didn't didn't know what the internet was, so mm-hmm. and most people didn't have an email address or yeah we had to online, explain so. to them what a website was. The internet was the, kind of this cool thing. People were using Netscape browser. <laughs> And uh, I think by the end of it, we, we got 18,000 businesses to be on, on our service, pay, paying to be like, with websites and everything. Yeah. You know, a lot of the things that you can do today, like automatically build websites, we, we, we built a lot of those sort of tools to make it easier to build websites. And we had to sell door-to-door because uh, that was the only way. Wow. Did you uh, hire people or was it just you guys going door-to-door? No, no. We had a team by that time because we could hire, hire a team. Yeah. But... Um, I remember talking to a Yellow Pages guy once, and it was amazing. It was the head of the oh, yeah. Toronto Star that they owned it's all like the Yellow Pages. In, Yellow Pages in, will never die. Famous last word. He literally, because <laughs> we we went and talked to him to partner. We said we want to partner with you, and, and let's let's be one of your partners to do to put the Yellow Pages online. 
and he picked up the yellow pages, this book, this big thick book that's full of ads, this multi-billion dollar revenue stream. <laughs> I mean, these, these guys were so arrogant and so, so arrogant. like, so we are kings of the world and Seriously. it will never end. He picked, he picked up like, this book and he like, threw it at me so and he said, <laughs> yeah, like, do you ever think you're going to replace this? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And I was just literally like, I, I'm in my yeah. head and my head is like, dude, you're already dead. <laughs> Yeah. Reminds me of the anti-Tesla people, you know. Gas cars will never die. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, like, we we saw the growth of the internet. We saw the use of the yellow pages. We saw even all our competitors and stuff. And no one was using the paper yellow pages if you had choice. Yeah. Exactly. No one. Yes, that's very true. And so, so at that point, very few people were on the internet. So it was really a question of really, is the internet going to succeed? Mm-hmm. Which we were huge believers in. And these guys were not. You know, mm-hmm. They didn't even clue in. Yeah, but it was like one, one foreign country after, after another. Mm-hmm. We would say like, listen, we'll just put your LPs online. It's going to cost very little. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll still own all the content and everything. Um, and they're like, they'll just throw, at us, throw us out of the office. Yeah. You know, like, no. <laughs> and how dare you even suggest this? It was, it, was, it was extraordinary, and it's been interesting. And we're like, okay, I guess well, we'll just build it, and, yeah. and then we're yeah. But it's been interesting to watch over the years, where like in PayPal, the competitors were were not uh, banks, you know, even though that should have been the competitor. There's no, there were there were banks that tried to compete. Um, but wasn't it eBay mostly that was sort of the, the ban- well, eBay, had, eBay had something called Bull, Bullpoint. Um, yeah. That which, but it wasn't exactly like PayPal. Yeah. Um, but. It, yeah, generally, eBay had an issue with trying to uh, get payment for stuff. Like, yeah. like two people would have to mail checks to each other. Um, yeah, that's and, gonna work. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah if you if you mail a check and you receive the check, and you're like, how do you know the check's real? Then you've got to, you know, cash check and take, you know, two to five days for the for the money to transfer. So it could take two weeks before somebody had confirmed payment, and then, uh, then they would ship you the item, and so the the transaction. Uh, velocity was very low as a result. Mm-hmm. If you had instant payment, you could imp- improve transaction velocity dramatically, like a factor of, you know, maybe three to five. Yeah, but I've I've just sort of seen that the, the when you when an in- industry is disrupted, that you worry about the major players. I mean, we remember we, when we started Tesla, we were aspiring to be the GM of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Four years later, GM went bankrupt. You're like, oh, okay, we don't need to be, we don't need to be, we're good, we're good, we're good. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, you know, whoever is going to be the main competitors, you know, we don't know yet, but um, uh, it may not be the, the entrenched players, it may, it may be not, yeah. uh, sort of mm-hmm. other companies. Um, and so, so that happened at Zip2, where, where we, we, we tried our best to partner with the industry, because that seemed like the best way to make some money and actually have a revenue model. And we ended up finding the newspapers to be a, a better partner because they didn't have the Yellow Pages business. And um, they, I think they seemed, were smarter. Their, their classifieds business was, was getting eaten away by Craigslist. Um, you know, before Craigslist, classifieds was the bread and butter of, of the newspaper. And of course, anyone who used, used Craigslist would never use the newspaper. So it was, it was those folks seemed to have a better, uh, uh, at least some of the players had a more, more vision of the future. And so our business became putting you know, major newspapers, New York Times, to all of the you know Philadelphia Inquirer, Chicago Tribune, or whatever, all, all the main players, all the, the the LA Times, everyone. And then we started going internationally, doing the same thing. So if you 
went on to the New York Times website and you wanted to search for a restaurant, of course, they have all these reviews. Or if you wanted to search for a home, they'd, you could, you could, we tied the MLS together with maps and door-to-door directions. So all of these services that we now use and take for granted that use maps and door-to-door directions, we, we did that all in the 90s to find a business model. Yeah. Well, might you do PayPal um, after Zip2? Why didn't you go like straight into sustainable energy? Um, right. So, um, gotta re- recall things that are now quite a while. So it would have been like '98 um, when Compaq offered to acquire Zip2, um, and uh, which I think it was a good thing for them to acquire it because, as I mentioned, it, the the newspapers actually, or the media companies, had too much control over Zip2. So they were not, we, we had great technology that was not being deployed effectively. Um, and they would just generally be averse to anything that could remotely be competitive with their newspapers. So so we're sort of trapped in this uh, situation. Um, and uh, it, but then Compaq came along and, and, and bought the company in late 98, and the deal closed early 99. So, so then as a result of that, um, Kim and I had some capital, uh, $20 million or something out of it. And um, the, 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 I think the thing that was frustrating to me was that we'd built uh, incredible technology um, and it had not been used. It was just sort of like very disappointing. You know, we put a lot of work into this technology and it just wasn't being used. So I was like, okay, I'm going to want to do one more thing on the internet just to show that we can make technology that is, uh, when it's used properly, can be extremely effective. So I thought about what, what, what's digital, essentially. What's, 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 what exists in the form of information um, and is also not high bandwidth? Because um, in 99, people still mostly had modems. So you couldn't, like video was not really feasible in 99. So, but money is low bandwidth and digital, effectively, mostly digital. So it's like, what can we do to make money work better? Um, and and like money, in my view, is, is essentially an information system for labor allocation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has no power in and of itself. It's, a, it's like a database for, um, this, for guiding people what what as as to what they should do, um, and so you can think of banks as a set of heterogeneous databases with um, that that are actually not very secure, uh, and certainly the uh, the monetary system, the transfer system of checks is not is is very insecure. Still is insecure. So are credit cards, um, and, um, and and it's all it's still mostly batch processing, and it was. In, Entirely batch processing that day, so it was not. So payments were, or money was this like heterogeneous, uh, high latency, low security uh, collection of databases. That's what banks are, um, and so just from an information theory standpoint, this should be something that can be much better if it can be real time, uh, secure, and um, and you know, just very fast. Um, Essentially, it's just one real-time database. Um, so it's like, okay, w- w- let's try to build that. 
Um, so that, that, that's what X.com was. And then at, at the time, I also thought we, what we should try to do is just do all the financial things as well, not just um, payments. I, I still think that's really what PayPal should have done, but whatever, it's water under the bridge at this point. Um, and then there was a company that was formed around the same time called Confinity, which was Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, and, and Luke Nosek, David Sachs, Ken Howery, and a number of those. And um, at X.com, there's also like Jeremy Stoppelman, and uh, who created Yelp, um, Roloff Boerter, who then went on to run Sequoia and, and fund YouTube. I was at, was at X.com. So we just had this like two, two, two companies with like a crazy amount of talent, uh, X.com and Confinity. And Confinity started as a Palm Pilot cryptography company. Um, back when you you could you'd communicate via the infrared port of a Palm Pilot. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, the Palm yeah. Pilot. So it was like, um, so you there, you could, you could basically communicate crypto tokens between Palm Pilots using the infrared port and then reconcile them on a piece on, on a PC. Now, obviously, that's they they evolved to go on the, in the payments direction as well. Um, and we were both in Palo Alto, like literally a block away from each other. Um, I think at one point we were briefly even in the same building. <laughs> it was, you know, you know. Um, so, so we were just competing with each other like maniacs. Um, and, and, and then we had uh, a coffee on University Avenue um, and said, hey, why don't we just combine our efforts or we're just going to bludgeon each other to death here. Um, so we, we merged Confinity and X.com um, and raised $100 million in the space of three weeks in March of 2000. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And in April, the market went into free fall. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh. So. The 2000s. Yeah. And I was like. I remember that. That was insane. <laughs> I know. And we kind of thought it was going to go into free fall, but we're like, we better get this thing done fast. Or <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're both going to die. So. And, and so, so uh, X.com was technically the acquirer of Confinity, but it was a you know fifty point one or forty nine point nine or something like that, um, and um, and then there was a lot of drama. There was so much drama at at, at X.com, um, and the, the company was called X.com for about a year, and then we changed the company name to the product name. The product, the product was PayPal. Um, but, but all the incorporation documents and everything is all this my incorporation documents. Who came so. up with the PayPal name? I, don't, I actually don't know. <laughs> People call you guys the PayPal Mafia now, you know. <laughs> Teal, Teal wrote that in his book. You know, I don't know who did the, 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 the PayPal. I was never a huge fan of PayPal as a name. Um, the, 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 the reason being that I, that I thought it made sense for for the company to kind of um, broader, be, be much broader. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, if, if, if you limit yourself to payments, then necessarily people want to transfer money out of the system. Um, and as, as soon as they tra transfer money out of the system, the efficiency of the database drops dramatically because now you're in the traditional banking world. So if you just offer all the things that, if you, if you just basically address all the reasons why people are taking money out of the PayPal system. So you have to provide them with 
with checks so that you have a bridge to the legacy transaction system. You got to provide them, provide them with a debit card, provide them with the ability to um, get a loan and that kind of thing. Um, and and um, but these are all ancillary to accelerating the, the velocity and accuracy um, and security of payments. Then then if, if basically PayPal would be where all the money is. It would just suck all the money out of the banks, and they wouldn't be. The banks would go away. Yeah. So any plan you're gonna do with the <coughs> the X I wrote the, the, if they just execute the business plan, you know, the product plan I wrote in July two thousand. Let's just do that. But they, I talked to them several times, but they didn't do it. So why did you and PayPal kind of part ways? What was really the drama that led to that, you know, <coughs> separation ultimately? Well, things were very dicey in 2000. Yeah. You know, companies were dying like all over the place. So I was CEO of the, of the combined company, um, and we're, we're we're doing quite well from a growth standpoint. Um, we're like you know, adding 100,000 users a month, type of thing, which back then was a lot. Yeah. Um, but our, financially, things were were tough, and we needed to raise a financing round. We were also like. There were some technical questions around what what code architecture would we go with, and then there was also a branding question. Like I said, like I think we we should not use PayPal as brand because this is not consistent with being where all the money is. Um, you, 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 you want a centralized database, so so I was kind of against the PayPal branding, and and I and I wanted basically I wanted to do a bunch of things that that seemed extremely risky, and I I'm. I think those things would have would have worked out, uh, but at a time when companies are dropping like flies, um, and I'm proposing that you know, we do all these things that sound very risky, uh, this is for, this is just much too scary for the rest of the team. You so, seem to be attracted to crazy ideas that other people are like. That like you know, I think the autopilot one is a great example where everyone's kind of trying the spatial approach to self-driving. You know, they're doing Waymo for 10 years, nobody cares. And you come out and say, hey, we think vision is the way forward and deep learning and vision, you know, uh, will take us all the way there. How do you find, like, yeah, of course. the courage inside to, I mean, people have to be coming up to you all the time, <clears throat> you know, thinking that you're an idiot or it's never going to happen. And, you know, how do you find that in yourself to, like, go through all that uh, resistance and still be confident in you know, your thesis? I mean, I try to be hyper-rational, so it's not, you know, to, it's just like, if this is, if the reasoning fits and you're not violating laws of physics or something, then that's the thing you should do. So, um, and, I, and I guess at the other day, <coughs> I, you know, if, if we lost all the money, I wouldn't, you know, as long as we didn't, Lose other people's money, I guess. I lost, lose my money out of mine. Um, these things just don't seem that crazy to me. So, like, I think if if like if PayPal had executed the plan that I wanted to execute on, I think it would probably be the most valuable company in the world. Yeah. Um, it would be called X, but it would be the most valuable company in the world. Um, on the other hand, now that's not all good, though. On the other hand, then a lot of super talented people would have stayed. Um, and because PayPal got, got acquired by eBay um, not long after, like 
you know, um, so there was like the PayPal coup at the end of 2000, 18 months later, it was acquired by eBay. So, um, and, and then, you know, if you think of the companies that came out of PayPal, the so-called PayPal mafia, YouTube, you know, those that Steve and Chad created YouTube, uh, Jerry Solomon created Yelp, um, uh, you know, Peter created uh, Palantir and a bunch of other things. Um, um, there's David Sachs created um, his company, and uh, Reid Hoffman yeah. created LinkedIn. It's almost like all that market cap still exists, but now it's <laughs> allocated on all these yeah. other tech companies instead of yeah. X.com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in retrospect, it, it like, I don't know, sometimes like, it's maybe a good thing that uh, X wasn't, or PayPal wasn't, didn't achieve those things because all these other companies would have at least been delayed um, or may not have existed. There's definitely been kind of a resurgence in interest as we get into kind of cryptographic you know, money and Bitcoin and all that of like yeah. interest in this idea, you know, and it's interesting, like software hasn't eaten the banking industry yet. Software's eaten a lot of industries. There's some that it just hasn't and banking's still there, you know. Stripes, Stripes eating them slowly, but they're, they're doing a pretty good job. But they're, 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 the, the banks are in trouble if, if it's not Stripe, it's be somebody else. And you love code, but you don't seem to be as bullish on Bitcoin. Do you have any, could you break down like why? Because you're talking about this big database that's more secure for faster transactions. It seems like Bitcoin's hitting at least some of those. I'm neither here nor there on Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did you think when you read like Satoshi's white paper for the first time? We were like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Or... That was pretty clever. It's 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 just like the th things. Yeah. <laughs> this, this always gets like the crypto people angry, but um, <laughs> uh, there there are there are transactions that are um, not within the bounds of the law, um, and those and there are obviously many laws in different countries, um, and normally cash is used for these transactions. Um, but, but, cat, but in order for illegal transactions to occur, those, the cash must also be used for legal transactions. You need an, uh, an illegal to legal bridge. Um, that's where crypto comes in. So is it kind of the dark net stuff? It, it, it can't be entirely yeah. dark because otherwise, how do you buy normal stuff? True. Yeah. It, and, and cash these days is used just much rarer. Mm. It's, it's hard. It's like increasingly difficult to use cash. Some places you can't use cash at all. Yeah. True. So th there's, a, there's a forcing function for uh, transactions that are Ill illegal, quasi-legal, and in some cases legal, but it's, they've got to have some, it's got to be both legal and illegal. It doesn't count otherwise. Otherwise you simply, it, it can't just be transactions within uh, an illegal economy because how do you buy like, you know, food in a house or something, you know, some, you must have a legal to legal bridge. Um, so where I see crypto as effectively as a replacement for cash, but not as a replacement for as a primary, uh, not, not as, I do not see crypto being the primary database. So 
Now, this is, this is sometimes taken being like, I'm being judgmental about crypto. And it's actually, I think there's a lot of things that are illegal that shouldn't be illegal. Um, um, but, you know, so it's not as though, I think that sometimes governments just have too many laws about that they should, shouldn't have so many things that are illegal. Didn't you say like on Mars, there'd be less laws? Hopefully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you still propose a direct democracy on Mars? Uh, I think probably that's the best that, I mean, probably it's the best thing. Mars technocracy. <laughs> the Mars technocracy. Yes. And you want to make laws super short and simple, right? Well, the... yeah, I mean, like, if people can't understand laws, then how do you, then what's usually going to happen is some special interest is going to bamboozle the public yeah. with long laws. Yep. And then the, the law is... Like reading this law, this law is like the size of Lord of the Rings, but a very boring version of it. <laughs> like you the know. dealership thing is just crazy to me. You know, like America is supposed to be competitive, free market. It's weird, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, anyway, just so you want to keep the law short and give them some kind of sunset period so they don't just stay there forever. Otherwise, just accumulate over time and just eventually it'll be unwieldy. So the laws should have some time frame associated with them. They automatically go away. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's just keep laws short to avoid trick, trickery and, and sort of special interests uh, that ultimately does not benefit the public. Um, and, and then I think direct, direct democracy is less susceptible to uh, corruption than representative democracy. So... Um, you know, corruption just being like, to what degree is this action being taken that do not serve the general the interests of the population? You know, um, do, do not result in a net increase in um, population happiness as a whole. Uh, so that's 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 why I think probably direct is better. Um, and and then you know, just have, have things in real time. So you know, if you, if you want to vote on something, you just you can vote on it real fast. You know. um, probably make it e- I would say make it easier to get rid of laws than to put them in, um, because these things tend to have a lot of inertia and so have a, have a bias to, towards having laws go away and not be there. You know, so like maybe it, it takes sixty percent to put a law in place, but forty percent to remove it or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, let's try it. You know, see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. The bills are extremely long that they pass. No one reads them. Yeah. <laughs> the Cong- hardly anyone in Congress has read the bill, and if even if they've read the bill, if you quiz them on the details, they wouldn't know it. They'll find their page. Yeah, it's like tell me what's yeah. This was no idea. It seems kind of alarming that that's like the status quo and everyone just accepts it, but. Yeah, the, these laws tend to be written by industry groups as well. Mm-hmm. So that, that, they'll write the law and then, and then interact with the congressional staff. And, 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 uh, but most of the work will be done by the industry groups. And so they're going to write laws that entrench the, their position. It's typically. like the, the, peop- or the players buying the ref, like you were saying yeah, earlier. Exactly. It's that exact thing. Right, so you get the regulatory capture of the... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The players shouldn't be paying the ref salary type of thing. Well, the ref shouldn't be thinking, I'm going to re- retire and 
get paid by the players. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of amazing that it works as well as it does given all these issues. Um, so um, yeah, so then PayPal, I, I ended up getting malaria and <clears throat> anyway in 2001. Um, no, oh, yeah. Two, yeah, 2001. Yeah, tell us about this, the malaria thing. Um, was, you went on vacation, right? Yeah, we're in South Africa with, with Kimball, actually. Yeah, it's uh, crazy. And then came <clears> back and had a near-death case of malaria. Yeah, we so, lived, grew up in South Africa. We, we'd go to the bush felt all the time, mm -hmm. to the what you guys call safari. Mm -hmm. And you just, you just had a house in the bush. You, you just would go there every, every few weeks or so. Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever took malaria tablets. We yeah. didn't have malaria in those days. I think there was a drought and then a flood and then suddenly the mosquitoes. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. And so we were, we were told to, and we did take malaria tablets. You took, you took yeah. them as well. <laughs> and, um, and when you got back, he was in Stanford and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. Our uncle, who's a doctor in, in South Africa, is like, he has malaria. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, he doesn't have malaria. We checked. So, uh, check again, malaria kind of hides in the body and then... So this was after PayPal got started? Oh, this is 2001. So sort of after the PayPal coup. So I was, I was on the PayPal board and I was provide, you know, providing sort of product uh, advice and whatnot. But uh, in December, late, late December 2000, went on a trip to South Africa, came back January early January 2001 I had a severe case of malaria almost died um, I sat next to his You were sleeping. I mean, like you're. It affected your brain that that harshly. Uh, yeah, no, it was bad. It was, yeah, it's really bad. Um, so that change your perspective. How did it like influence you after that? I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't think it changed me that much. Would you say? No, I don't think it did. Recovered and went back to um, yeah. But how many times have you been on vacation? I lost like since 50 pounds, though. It was great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was great. <laughs> so um, no more vacations, though. <laughs> well, yeah. It was, uh, it was, it took me like almost six months to get back to normal. Um, so, uh, and then, it, so in 2001, um, I was thinking about, you know, what to do next and, uh, and um, I thought the, um, you know, this is like, okay, sustainable energy, like basically electric cars, solar, um, space. Uh, and, and then a friend of mine asked me, you know, so what are you going to do next? I said, well, you know, I would love to do something in space, but I didn't think anything of, there's anything that a private individual could do in space. But um, at least I'm going to go on the NASA website and find out when people are going to Mars. Mm -hmm. And I go on the net web NASA website, and it's nowhere to be found. And so I'm like, well, this is pretty weird. 
Um, that, and then I discovered that it was actually a NASA policy not to talk about it. Um, really? Yeah, at the time. Huh. Why, why was that, do you think? Um, what I was told is that uh, when George Bush the first uh, was um, he, when he was elected, he, he said in 90, he has NASA to put together a plan to send people to Mars mm. in 90 days. They came back with a plan and it was $500 billion. Oh. Um, and uh, it says, well, that, this is like political suicide. So he, then after that talk of manned missions to Mars were banned. Wow. Um, that's what I sold. Yeah. Mm. So the, anyway, so it's like, well, you know, Maybe there's something that can be done here to get the public excited about going to Mars. And if, if I get the public excited, then they will vote NASA to have more funding. Mm-hmm. And um, so the original idea for SpaceX was just to have a philanthropic mission to Mars. Yeah, cool. I actually, it started as a graphic of a, of a pot plant. You just need, just need plant, to get yeah. the pot plant to Mars. You know, it was like an inspiration. <laughs> Sure. Just, just uh, as a as a as a way to prove to the world that it could be done. Uh, yeah. So the mission was called Mars Oasis. It was uh, seeds and dehydrated nutrient gel that would hydrate upon landing. You get this great picture of green plants on a red background. Um, like first sort of life as we know it on Mars, and the you could also learn a, you know, a lot about what does it take to keep plants uh, alive and have a little miniature greenhouse on on surface of Mars. Um, so that's, that's what I initially pursued as, as like a way to basically increase NASA's budget. That was, it wasn't, let's create a space company. It was, how do we get NASA's budget increased so we can go send people to Mars? Um, and I, I was trying to figure out how to get this thing launched. And I, um, the, the rockets, the European and U S rockets were too expensive and I couldn't afford, afford them. So, um, I went to Russia to try to buy some ICBMs uh, in 2001, you know, literally. Um, and uh, they, they kept raising the price on me and it was quite been quite difficult. Um, and I said, I, you know, I could afford to pay like, I don't know, $9 million for an ICBM, but not, not 20. Because I figured we need to do two of these missions because odds are good that one would fail and then it could have a, a negative impact. Potentially, um, so that was pretty weird. Being in Moscow, trying to buy ICBMs in two thousand one. <laughs> That's amazing. How yeah. do you negotiate to buy an ICBM? Yeah, I call up the military and say, "Well, you know, they they got to get <laughs> they got to get rid of these things anyway because of the arms reduction treaties." So it's like, if listen, if you're going to throw it away, I'll. Buy take it off your hands, you know. Um, they have to. It was like SS eighteen Dnieper. Um, uh, it was the biggest nuclear missile in the Russian fleet, and uh, but anyway, they're gonna you know decommission these things. So um, why why not just tell me them instead? Um, and and then they, every every time I talked to them, the price would go up, and I'm like, this is this is not good. Because I, you know, so even if once we do a deal, we're probably going to get shafted afterwards too. And if I, this is the pre-deal shafting, 
you know? <laughs> and it's like, it's, what's going to be after? Or it's, you know, when I've, after I've given the money, then it's not going to be good. So, uh, so that I, yeah. So I, I, and then I started looking into it as like, why are rockets cost so much? And, and so there's nothing fundamental about why they should cost so much. If you add up the materials and say, if you, you know, it's not like the raw materials cost that much. You really just need to figure out a smart way to get the materials in that shape. Um, and, and then you need, we need to make rockets reusable. So like any form of transport, if it's not reusable, it's extremely expensive. You know, if, if, if cars were single use, um, you know, and you need a round trip, you, you know, if you bought a car for $20,000, then your round trip will cost you $40,000. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's crazy. So it's the same thing is true for aircraft and boats and rockets and everything. So, uh, so they were, the rockets were expensive, even as expendable things, but then they were also not reusable. So there's no way we're going to have a city on Mars unless we can have um, reusable, low-cost, reliable rockets. That's fundamentally the issue. Uh, so, so I came to the conclusion that even if this Mars Oasis mission was successful, it would still not result in the goal. It, it would not materially further the goal of being a multi-planet species because uh, the rocket technology was not good enough. Um, and it was not getting better. In fact, it was arguably getting worse. So, so the real thing that needed to be solved here is reusable rocketry and lowering the cost of access to space. And that, that's something like, okay, well, I'm going to try to do that. Um, so then I got SpaceX started in early 2002, basically. Um, I, was, I was living in Palo Alto at the time but most of the engineering expertise was in Southern California. So that's why I moved to LA. Um, Did you ever have any, like even inkling of imagination that you could be doing, you know, a dozen launches a year and being contracted with NASA? <laughs> Is that even like it? I thought that was where I know I thought we had, you know, 10% chance of success or something like that. You ended up being chief engineer, right? Yeah. Which is like no one wanted to give up their secure jobs with ULI and something but, at the yeah. beginning. I, I, exactly. I, uh, I actually tried to hire... It, it basically, there had been a number of attempts at doing a, a private rocket company or commercial rocket company, and they all, all, really, all failed effectively. Um, and then it's to, to the degree that it was like a joke in the aerospace industry, like how do you make a large portion, large fortune in the rocket, you know, if it start with a, yeah, how, how do you make, how do you make a small fortune in, in the rocket industry? Start with a large one. <laughs> I'm going to be in the restaurant business. <laughs> yeah. They, they told me that joke so many times. I would just jump to the punchline, you know. Uh, so the, yeah, it's, it was very hard to recruit people because uh, I had not built any physical hardware before. Um, so it's, and, and I kept being called internet guy <laughs> for the longest time, for ages. Uh, finally, I made, for the first 10 years, they were calling me internet guy. Or basically an internet entrepreneur yeah. slash fool. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to start a rocket company. What if an idiot? 
that was generally how it, how it went. So it was quite hard to recruit people, and you know, especially if somebody's got like a secure job at you know Boeing or Lockheed or something like that, um, then trying to recruit them to be you know chief engineer of a solid rocket company it was hopeless. So basically, no, no, nobody, nobody who was who was good was willing to join, and there was no point in hiring somebody who wasn't good. So uh, I ended up being chief engineer, um, you know, which is yeah. So the, the the first three launches failed, and probably if I'd been better, then I, we would have gotten to orbit sooner. So uh, it took me a while to learn all these things. So from books or. Books and talking to people. Did you go to Utah and talk to anybody, like at ATK Orbital, or? Oh yeah, I visited ATK. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Orbital is, is uh, Dallas, Virginia. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I visited ATK, uh, visited Orbital. Um. And they, Orbital had had a success with the solid rocket-based uh, Pegasus. Mm-hmm. Um. But but they'd also gotten like an eight launch deal from DARPA, uh, so you know, like okay if you got if you're starting off with basically an eight launch deal from DARPA, that's a, a good situation. I know we did not have a launch deal from anyone. Um, and Pegasus is a, and I mean there's some clever engineering with Pegasus, but fundamentally I think launching rockets from planes is not sensible. Um, it, it sounds like it would be a good idea, but it's not. Um, and then e- even Orbital went away from doing that with their, as soon as you get past certain size, they went to ground launch. Yeah, I was reading somewhere that um, ATK, well, Thicol, Morton Thicol, they, they were doing snowcats, they were doing ski lifts, and they sold that to the man who made the DeLorean. He, really? Yeah. I just read that in their Wikipedia. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. What to come around. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Um, right. So, yeah. So we got SpaceX going, um, and that was very difficult. Um, we, we got the Falcon One rocket built. Uh, it was very simple. It's the simplest orbital rocket that's li- a liquid fueled. So that it had the potential for reusability, um, for for useful reusability, um, and then yeah, we had three failures. Um, finally, got to orbit at the end of two thousand eight. So that was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Going down to Kwajalein and watching. Yeah, you wrote it like a blog for a while. Yeah, I actually still have it up there. <laughs> it's uh, still and it's a, it's an old old blogging platform that Google still keeps alive. It's called quajrockets.blogspot.com. I think it's going to get a lot of traffic soon. <laughs> yeah, totally. Send it. Check it out. It's all there. It's uh, yeah. photos and photos of... of yeah. uh, there was one yeah, photo we'll of Elon picking up a, a, a satellite. He, we launched the rocket and the rocket exploded. It was very, very, very sad. Everyone's super sad. The people were like pouring their heart and soul into the rocket. And the satellite was, I think, a... a the U.S. Uh, Navy or uh, uh, Air Force Academy. Air Force Academy, and it yeah. it was thrown out of the rocket and fell through the roof of the hangar on the well, launch well, pad. Not, it, this is 
like where you really think like barely a hanger exactly it's like a like a like a stand-up tent and small tool shed yeah wasn't supposed to do that like, no <laughs> maybe the size of this room uh the the, the i mean the rocket it had this is the first launch failure so the uh it, it had a there's a cracked aluminum b-nut on that that cracked during during liftoff and created so the engine there was an engine fire the, this this wouldn't have been the end of the world, but there was a um, w- one of the the helium lines was uh, steel mesh overwrapped with like with a Kevlar sleeve, uh, and it melted the the, the sleeve the the, the um, in, and so we lost pressure uh, pneumatic pressure, which caused the engine valves to close. So uh, about thirty seconds after liftoff, the engine shut itself off. Due to the engine fire, and then it, it went it went ballistic and and, and basically smashed um, in in the rocks just I don't know, a couple, couple hundred feet offshore, um, and when it when it's when, it was quite a big explosion actually. <laughs> um, it, it, in that explosion, the satellite, uh, which was in a fairing, went through the fairing on a ballistic arc back onto the island. <laughs> Smashed through the tool shed roof and onto the floor in a pretty reasonable condition. <laughs> like it wasn't oh, totally gnarled. Um, <laughs> you could reuse it? I so mean, we, we, we gave yeah. them back their satellite. <laughs> so, so like, we didn't lose your satellite, but may need some repair. But it was so improbable that the satellite would come back. Um, <laughs> we had a couple more failures after that. Um, yeah, 2008 was a particularly difficult year because we had the third failure um, in 2008. The Tesla round, financing round collapsed. Oh, such a nightmare. And I got divorced. And it was just bad. I think 2008 was, was bad year. <laughs> really, <laughs> really bad. It was yes. a bad year. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone could. I, th- I, th- I think 2018. I think 2018 was worse. What's up with AIDS? Well, with the Model 3 <laughs> ramp, right? I mean, oh, was... there were so many things that happened in oh, 2018. Yeah. So much drama. It's insane. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, sorry, so... This is, we're, we're in 2002, starting SpaceX. Um, moved down to L.A. Um and it was just it was pretty fun in the beginning. Like generally, startups are pretty fun in the beginning, um, and and then you go through the, you know, chasm of doom. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Chasm of doom. The yeah. trough of sorrow. The trough of sorrow. Exactly. Yeah. It's rough. Despair. Yeah. It's usually always like everyone's like super optimistic and excited <laughs> for first, <laughs> first year or so, and then the. Then things start to go awry, and there's usually many years of grief before this finally day dawns. Um, so yeah, so it's like yeah, 2002, um, and then about uh, 2003 is when um, uh, Rosen and JB Strabel called me up and said, "Hey, we want to have lunch." Um, I want to say Harold Rosen. I think that's his name. Um, 
but he he uh, he really had um, he was a pioneer in space technology and electric vehicles, um, which is you know our crossover, uh, and he'd done some with Rosen Motors, which is like sort of an electric vehicle company, and um, but he he'd also been pioneer in geostationary satellites, uh, so. Uh, anyway, he called me up and said, "Hey, let's have lunch." Uh, so we had, we had like lunch at uh, like Smith and Wolanski or something in in El Segundo, where SpaceX started. Um, and so, Stravel and Rosen were talking about space stuff, and then started talking about electric cars. And I said, "Oh yeah, you know, so I was going to be working on electric car technology at Stanford and." Uh, and then uh, Jim JV said, uh, you know, we should uh, take a drive in the T zero from AC propulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was like, yeah, you know, because the, the the timing is, is like lithium ion batteries was really like the critical breakthrough needed for compelling electric cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, okay, I'll go try out their T zero, um, which had specs similar to the what we eventually brought to market as Tesla Roadster. So then, I so yeah, so I got I got a ride in the T zero, and then I tried to convince um, Al Kakoni and Tom Gage to commercialize the T zero. Now the T zero, and there's like lots of stuff online about it. Um, it it you know it didn't have doors or a roof, so. <laughs> Like clearly you need to add those things uh, or any safety systems um, and it was very unreliable um, because it was just like sort of a proof of concept basically. I heard it was basically like hand assembled you guys really had trouble scaling it. No, it's, I mean it literally didn't have doors or, or a roof <laughs> or any airbags or an effective cooling system for the battery um, and it was not safe. Um, and it was very unreliable. It would break down. Like you, it needed to be babied by an engineer, or it would not. You couldn't use it. So, um, but nonetheless, it did get like zero to sixty. I think under you know, under four seconds, uh, two hundred fifty mile range. Uh, yeah. It was enough to convince you that it was possible. I mean, I I, I knew it was possible because if you go from um, the energy density of lead acid to um, to lithium ion, you've got about a 4x energy density improvement. So if you've got if you've got say a 60 mile range with lead acid, you're going to have about a 250 mile range with with lithium ion, with the same weight. Um, so, but it, it was it was cool to see it in action with uh, with AC propulsion, um, and I, I so I, I tried hard to convince those guys. Like I really pestered them a lot to going to, to commercialize the, the T0. Um, and they just did not want to do it. Um, weirdly, w- the thing they wanted to make was uh, an electric scion. And I'm like, guys, nobody's going to pay $70,000 for an electric scion, okay? <laughs> that was their idea, $70,000 for an electric scion. I'm like, this is not going to work, okay? You will sell like 14 of these things. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I can you know, I have like the email trails and these, yeah, I mean, I think they're still, still around. So, um, 
In fact, but I, I even say, listen, I, even though I think this is the dumbest idea ever, I, I will, I will pay, I will fund one tenth of it. <laughs> if you can find nine other people, and then I think the only other person I could find who would do it was Sergey, Sergey Brin. So it's like, okay, Sergey and I are the only ones willing to do this, I think. And so they didn't actually get it off the ground. But and I, I said, it's going to fail. <laughs> but at least it's, it's something. Um, and, and so then eventually I said, I'm like, listen, if you guys are not going to commercialize the T0, do you mind if I do it? Uh, and they're like, no, yeah, that'll be totally fine. Like, okay. Um, so, so then I was going to, it's like, okay, so I'm, go do this with, with JV and we'll, we'll go commercialize, create a commercial version of the T0. And, and then um, Gage and Kakoni said, well, you know, there's some other people who also want to do it. Do you want to maybe team up with them? Um, he said there were two other groups that wanted to do it. And I was like, okay, sure. You know, this, maybe this is a way that I can have my cake and eat it too, you know. Uh, famous last words. Never worked out. Ah, oh, damn. Try to have your ca cake and eat it too, doesn't it? <laughs> right. This one's going to be easy. No, I mean, well, <laughs> I didn't think it would be easy, but it was like, I thought maybe I can allocate like 20 to 30 hours a week and just work on product engineering and then other people can do those stuff. And I don't even like doing other stuff anyway. So, um, that didn't work out. So, um, so the, then um, Tom Gage said, he said there were two teams, but I only ever met one. And that was uh, Eberhard, Toppening, and Wright. Um, but like the thing that is really bugs me about them is like they, 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 Eberhard in particular, the worst guy I've ever worked with. And I want to make a note of this. He is literally yeah. the worst person I've ever worked with. <laughs> and I've worked with some real douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> To be number one <laughs> takes a lot. <laughs> it's not easy. His version of the story is like is that out of the blue he pitched me on on fund, on funding his electric car company, and 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 he convinced me to do it. Totally false. Okay, I was like, I'm creating an electric car company. It's like the engaged said, well, maybe you could team up. It's like okay, well, maybe that that might be a worth worth doing, and and so the 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 company ended up being basically five people. This is right, the toppling, uh, you know, um, Everhard, Straubel, and myself, and and so it was the five of us, um, and uh, like toppling always tries to write write right out of the history books because mm -hmm. they had a huge battle and they made me choose which one was going to be CEO, it's uh, right or, or Everhard, and I talked to JB and I was like, which one, because I really did not want to be CEO, so they're like, okay, well, both have issues, but maybe right has bigger issues than toughening, that's what JB said, so maybe, you know, lesser of evils, I was like, okay, fine, I got to make a choice here, because the two of them would not, they would not, they refused to be in the same building, so I was like, huh. Uh, a lot of drama. But Tezza has so much drama. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, it's not like the. I said, like, you know, 
uh, you know, lesser of two evils. So it's like I said, Ian Wright, sorry, you know, not that I didn't think you had good points, but I got if I got to pick one, I, and I don't, I was trying not to be CEO. I got to make this rocket company work. So, anyway, so then made, uh, you know, it was like right, you know, it's like I had to leave then. Anyway, um, so we got the basically we we. we the, we jammed a AC propulsion powertrain and battery pack into a Lotus Elise. Um, with the first prototyping, like really just jammed it in, you know. Um, and and the, and um, in retrospect, this was not a good idea uh, because the the car ended up weighing like like. 60% more than in the lease or on that order. Um, and we didn't have enough volume to put the battery pack. Uh, and, and we had to meet all, we invalidated all of the crash tests because the weight distribution was different. It was heavier. So none of the crash tests were valid anymore. We had to redo the airbags. The air conditioning, air conditioner ran off a belt fan. So we didn't have a belt fan. So we had to have a new air conditioning system. So we had to change the HVAC system. Uh, and so Basically, in the end, only about like I think six or seven percent of the parts ended up being in common with the lease. Wow. So, and and we went through a lot of trouble trying to shoehorn everything in there. And it, I mean, it's a cute car, but it's ten percent too small. It's like, <laughs> and um, and then the cost ended up being crazy. Um, and um, yeah, and then. And then yeah. There, there was there was an audit of the costs of the the the, the, the production cost of the roadster by one of uh, the investors that joined in two thousand seven, and um, and then they 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 called me up and said, hey the the numbers that Martin is telling you that everyone's telling you about the roadster are totally false. Oh boy. Uh, and I was like, what do you mean? And like he said, no, we just did an audit. There, it's more than twice of what he's saying. The, Yikes. Yeah, it's like we would have to sell this car for a quarter million dollars in order to make to not lose money. I'm like, this is insane. So anyway, then he, we obviously had to fire Everhard. Uh, there was no choice about that. Uh, yeah, and then it turned out he not only had he misled me directly, but he'd instructed others to also lie. Oh. Yes. When I say like somebody is like the worst person I've ever worked with. Yeah. Mm. It was pretty bad. Yeah. So, um, but SpaceX also hadn't gotten to orbit that time. So I was like, man. So then I tried, so like, okay, I asked, um, what is the name? Uh, Harris? Um, remember the guy? Um, he, I'm blanking on the that name. That we, we brought on his CEO? Interim. Uh, yeah, he 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 ran like a manufacturing company. Um, I mean, he seemed pretty smart. The, pro the problem the problem that I found with Tesla was we were we were a startup in Silicon Valley, um, building a car that was really manufacturing and materials engineering. And it's really like all the talent was for you think well, there was probably talent you know 
in Detroit or Japan. But if you took any of those guys and run Tesla, they would run out like a car company and then it would be destroyed. Well, they had no idea. You can take somebody who's running a You just a could not take someone from a massive company culture yeah. and have them do a startup. And yet you couldn't find anyone in Silicon Valley who knew, who knew enough about making cars. And so we kind of found a middle middle of the road one who was he was an he was an expert Flex, in Flextronics. manufacturing. Flextronics, the, that's right. Ex CEO of Flextronics uh, was an investor, um, and he he agreed to just become join as interim CEO. And this is uh, two thousand seven. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Tesla was a company you tried so hard not to be CEO of. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> But the, the thing is, this is misinterpreted, if I say that, it's misinterpreted as like, I somehow don't love Tesla, which I do. Uh, it, it's just like trying not to go insane uh, with working. Yeah, you can, you, being CEO of a, of, a, of a real startup is 80 hours a week. Being CEO of two is 160 hours a week. And there's yeah. only 169 hours or something of sleep. Of, 168 of, of, hours a week. Of 168 mm-hmm. hours a week. So like you just can't physically do it. Yeah. I mean, pain level is extreme. So... Uh, that's, yeah. Anyway, let's try quite hard uh, not to, to be CEO, you know, um, but had to be uh, no no choice. That or Tesla would die. So, so that yeah, this is Everhard got was fired in July two thousand seven, um, and he was he was at the time we didn't know he'd instructed other people to lie, so we thought he was just, you know, it wasn't as bad. But once he left the building. Then we t- it turned out no, he'd actually orchestrated uh, a massive deception, which is quite bad. Um, so, I uh, yeah, yeah. He, well, he also says he came up with the name of Tesla Motors, Motors, which is false. That was uh, created by a guy in '95, um, and, and moreover, he knows this because we went to great lengths. We have. We had to buy the trademark. Yeah, exactly. So he didn't come up with a name. It was trademarked in '95. Um, <laughs> so there's like this whole bullshit backstory of that. Um, but the the guy we almost we almost had to change the name of the company because the guy who owned Tesla Motors uh, wouldn't communicate with us. Um, and so eventually we sent the nicest guy in the company. No, who's weirdly Martin's best friend, which I don't understand. But Mark Toppening, super nice guy. I like Mark a lot, actually. Yeah, you can't not like Mark. Yeah, exactly. It's impossible. Um, he's a super nice guy. So we sent Mark to go sit on the guy's doorstep and not leave until he... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> until he agreed to at least negotiate with us or something. He talked to us. Um, and then we ended up buying the trademark for $75,000. Um, Good deal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Was he the one who owned the domain, too? No, that was a whole different nightmare. But the, no, the domain guy, that took us 10 years to buy that Tesla.com domain. Um, man, and he, it was a, it is, I think, still an, um, like a networking engineer at Juniper. Uh, so, yeah, that was, and that cost us like $10 million. Yeah, that was crazy. Like, just the guy just held out. Was he just sitting on the domain or was he using it for something? It was impossible to... No, he wasn't using it for anything. Just, uh, just holding the name. It's like Twitter handle Falcon Heavy isn't being used. <laughs> <laughs> We're fighting for that one. Yeah, so man, that was... Took us ages to buy the Tesla economy. Um, 
But we're, we're going to have to change the name of the, to, to be um, something else. And actually, I'm, the, the lead candidate was, for, for, was, was Faraday as the name. Because mm -hmm. Faraday invented the electric motor, mm -hmm. and then uh, Tesla perfected the electric motor with the AC induction motor. So it was, um, so it was, if, if we couldn't do Tesla, we would do Faraday. And then, ironically, a competitor was later created called Faraday. Faraday yeah. yes. A startup. Yeah. From yeah. China, right? Um, yeah. 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 So. Um, Did you guys have a Faraday a logo or anything? Were you that far down? No. Um, we didn't really even have a Tesla logo until mm -hmm. later because there's nothing to sell or anything. So um, it, the, the, in the end, the, the Tesla logo and the Tesla font um, uh, was done by m me working with uh, basically a, a little firm. That's why the Tesla and SpaceX, there, there's some similarities between the, 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 the fonts and uh, that's because it was done by the same people. <laughs> um, yeah, I spent a lot of time on the Tesla and SpaceX fonts. The, 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 the little <laughs> That's cool. Yeah.